Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Open Concessions podcast presented by Toyota, featuring a weekly in-depth conversation with a Chicago Cubs-related personality. We are your hosts. I'm Len Casper alongside Jim Deshays. You may know us as the Cubs television tandem. J.D., how are you this week? I'm doing great, Len. How are you? I'm good. Still kind of basking in the glow of Alec Mills' no-hitter on Sunday. We've had some interesting games here the past few days. Yeah, it, it's uh, the beautiful thing about our game. You know, you kind of go through a stretch where the games aren't all that compelling, and then you get into a run like like we've been through in Milwaukee, and then again last night where there's a lot of drama, a lot of interesting stuff going down, and of course highlighted uh, by the uh, wannabe engineering student at the University of Tennessee, Martin, who decided to walk on and ends up pitching a no-hitter in the big leagues in, what, his 15th big league start. Yeah, pretty amazing. Uh, it all kind of started with Jason Hayward's big home run off Josh Hader the night before. The Cubs offense hadn't done a whole lot, and then that led right into the uh, the no-hitter for Alec Mills. And uh, by the time this podcast is out, we're going to be just over a week before uh, the end of the regular season and the playoffs starting. So it's a, it's a really fun time to be a baseball fan and a Cubs fan as well. And our guest today is Cubs pitching coach, Tommy Hadovy, and we've got a lot of, I think, pretty fascinating things to ask Tommy about. Not only uh, Alex no hitter on Sunday, uh, but remember, before the season started, Tommy uh, actually came down with COVID nineteen, and it was it was a very rough journey for him, JD. Yeah, it was a, a very scary and kind of a wake up moment for I think the whole the baseball industry. I would not be surprised to find out that every club told Tommy Hadovy's story to their players and coaches just to kind of. Uh, send a flare up to say, "Hey, you, you got to be careful. This is this is very scary stuff. This is a, a healthy young guy who was diligent uh, about you know going about his his day to day routine, and he still ended up with the virus and was very sick uh, for a good long while." So we look forward to our conversation. Enjoy Tommy Hadovy, the Cubs pitching coach. Well, Tommy, uh, while it's still fresh uh, in everybody's uh, brain and heart, uh, your thoughts on Alec Mills' no-hitter on Sunday. What what a day. Yeah, absolutely. I think you said it right there. I mean, just what an amazing day. Um, really an amazing 24 hours for the Cubs in general. Just the, the way we finished the, the night before with Jay Hayes, you know, big homer and, and Vargas following him up. and then. You know, Craig coming and shutting it down. And then the next day, you know, you kind of roll in, in there and, and you're getting Alec ready for the day and you're feeling good about the win the night before. And, you know, it, it's just such a unique um, opportunity to be involved in, in something historic like that. Um, I was fortunate enough to be around, you know, both of Arietta's no hitters and handling a lot of the positioning and game planning stuff with Porzello at that time. So, you know, you, you, you feel it, you know, you feel when you're getting close to something like that, you know, um, with Alec though, this one, you know, obviously for me, just being my first one with the first one as the pitching coach, um, obviously means a lot, but I think this one for me is so unique because of two things. One, I know it was pretty documented, you know, Alec had 114 pitches. He had five swing and miss, you know, there's a lot of balls 
put in play a lot of contact, a lot of weak contact, and even some hard hit balls that went right to people. And and every position player on the field made it, recorded it out. Um, so every everybody, even Vic, got a pop up in the last inning. You know, so I think, or or one of the last innings. So I think we had every position player make an out. You know, on the field, Bodie made Bodie turned a double with playing third pay. <laughs> Playing third base, turned a double play in a shift and made a, a play on Yelich at playing shortstop because we were in the shift. You know, Kipnis made a play deep in the hole in a shift and then also made a play on the pull side of, of second base with a right-handed shift. You know, guys made plays everywhere. <laughs> you know, Haps catching center. Um, Schwab had some hard line drives at him. So, you know, for us, it, you know, obviously for Alec, the way he's able to move the ball around and and change speeds and do so many just unique things with the baseball, you know, gives them the confidence to to pitch the contact. And in a game where we get, you know, mesmerized by swing and miss and velocity and and where this game is going, it's refreshing when you have guys that can pitch the contact that understand what pitching is about and and execute pitches. He threw the other unique thing too. He threw more pitches under 70 in that game than he did over 90. It's just it's it's unbelievable. And I, we know like most of those are his curveball, but that's not what you see in today's game. It's just so unique. So I just think that there's so many things that that add to to that day and how Alec did the positioning. Like you give credit to the outfield making plays, Venable on top of the positioning the infielders making plays and, and, you know, Andy Green who handles that in the dugout, but also Brad Mills um, who worked tirelessly to make sure guys are in the right position. And, and the last hitter of the game was um, Jace Peterson, who I don't believe had an at bat the whole series and then comes up in arguably the biggest spot for us in, in a, in a game like that. And Greeny didn't really have time to, like to, we didn't have time to dig into the exact positioning. Like we we use what was on the card, and what was on the card is what Brad Mills put together, you know, for the positioning on Jace Peterson. The ball got hit right to Hobby, you know, like stuff like that. Just just cool stories that I'm going to remember from that day, and obviously what what Alec was able to accomplish is just such a cool cool feeling. Yeah, and it was great to hear Alec after the game. <laughs> he didn't even know that uh, Taylor and Peterson were were in the game. He was like he's he's waiting for Yelich to come up and and you know now batting Tyrone Taylor you know however it played out he's like huh I didn't know that well uh, you know you know like you don't want to talk to the pitcher and and you know after the seventh we stopped talking to him you know so we we had kind of been you know just talking joking joking even in between innings like just how he was feeling and stuff like that and then. And then after the seventh, it was just starting to head nod, right? All right, good, you good? Yep, I'm good. All right, head nod, just keep walking. Well, then we saw it, and Borzy came up to me, and he was like, hey, what do you want to do? Like, we had two pinch hitters coming up. And so Mills and and uh, Vic were sitting next to each other on the bench, and so we just walked right by Mills and sat on the other side of Vic and just started going over the hitters. And it was so funny because he took out his little note thing that he has in his back pocket. Um, that has the lineup on it. He flipped it over and grabbed my pen and just started jotting down notes as we were talking. So it was it was it was a pretty cool moment. Make sure we were locked in on two new guys that we hadn't seen. And and I was hoping 
that we were talking loud enough that Mills would hear us <laughs> indirectly. Yeah. But, we're not talking uh, to you. We're not talking to you. Don't listen to us. But yeah, it, it, the last two outs were two guys. Tommy, I want to I want to double back a little bit to uh, the positioning because it's something you were responsible for uh, before you became the pitching coach, and now, as you mentioned, Brad Mills does that. I guess Craig Edwards did kind of a deep dive on at least the no hitters that have been recorded when uh, in, in the in the modern era where you could record a lot of the the uh, batted ball uh, uh, information. And essentially what Alec did was like a one in 9,600 chance, uh, no hitter. I guess James Paxton two years ago was like the, the, the second most unlikely no hitter. And it was like one in, you know, 1,500. So it was off the charts. And I think it does speak to defensive positioning today because where balls are hit and how hard they're hit, these are balls that used to be hits. And, uh, other than the Jed Jerko drive that Hap ran down, even the hard contact on Sunday didn't feel dangerous, right? Because there was there was a defender right there. So uh, I just wanted to underscore the idea that you correctly state that this really was a team no-hitter in every sense of the term. Yeah, I really felt that way. And, and the work that gets put into positioning during a game. I don't think people really understand the amount of time and effort and conversation that goes into that. You know, it it's easy to look at a spray chart and just say, okay, well we're, you know, let's just play here. That's where he hits the ball the most. You know, we take pride in taking that a step further and and really digging into our game plan and how we want to attack hitters. Um, if a guy hits a ton of balls in the hole on sliders, well guess what? Like Kyle Hendricks doesn't throw a slider. So there's no point in us trying to defend a pitch that he doesn't throw, if that makes sense. So we really try to identify um, how we're going to attack hitters ultimately, and, and let's plan for execution. I mean, we, we want to execute those pitches. If we, if we pull up, you know, Alec Mills in that game, we're throwing a lot of like two seamers up and into righties. Let's say he, he pulls one to Abisel Garcia and leaves it out over and the guy hits a single the other way. You can live with that because it wasn't an executed pitch. But what we want to accomplish is when we do execute what we're trying to accomplish, that's when the outs we want. And, and I think that's just a culmination of what that game was on Sunday. Alex's ability to execute allowed us to be more aggressive and be in the right place a lot of the time. Um, even on the hard hit balls, just like you said, it seemingly felt like they were hit right at guys. So, um, yeah, it, it just is a team effort and, and a lot of that behind the scenes work that Brad does um, and that the coaching staff, you know, does the outfield and infield position to make sure that we're all in the right position and communicating in game what we're seeing. You know, it's fun to see that all come together. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And I just want to follow up because, you know, the old school. Uh, kind of way of viewing uh, positioning was, you know, we're going to pitch him away and play him away, so, something like that. And what you're saying is, we're going to, here's how our pitcher is going to attack the hitters. And because of his tendencies and the hitter tendencies, we're going to position our, our guys a certain way, not necessarily ask our pitcher to pitch to a certain part of the field. Is that clear? Does that make, is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and understanding too where, 
each individual pitcher's like misses are. I think that's important too. You know, like okay, if Alec is is doing a good job and we want to run two seamers in, um, his his if his miss is usually a pull, how does that affect us? Does that give us? Are we still okay? You know, does that pull usually go in the air for this specific hitter? So yeah, just understanding who who we are too in in terms of um under, you know, understanding where those misses come into play. Um, yeah, that's absolutely kind of how we try to, to piece this all together. Hey, uh, so on positioning, and this is something uh, we talked about on the air, and it was it was JD's original uh, idea. Uh, so I don't want to steal his thunder, but singles now. I feel like anecdotally, the hard hit balls become outs because you're positioned to to defend those, but you get a lot of off field bleeders and bloops. And so the question is, is there going to be any way at some point with a guy like Javier Baez, not a not a you know five man infield per se in a desperate situation, but even a you know a pull shift against a a, a left handed hitter where you know, Javi kind of becomes a hybrid infielder, outfielder, and kind of guards against the mishit because I don't know about you, Tommy, but I just feel like we see a million jam shot, uh, uh, you know, floaters over where the shortstop would be. Or maybe it's the left fielder, the off field uh, corner outfielder, literally moving 20 feet closer to home plate and daring uh, a left handed batter to hit the ball over his head. Have you had those kinds of conversations? Yeah, and I mean you're right. It would be really interesting to see, you know, take the field and shrink it down to like 180 feet, and then see the average exit velocity on on singles hit under 180 feet, and then the average exit velocity of outs in that same area. I bet the singles have a lower exit velocity than than the outs for, for the most part. Um, yeah, you see. So if you watch a game with us, you'll see one thing specific. I think will answer kind of the question you're talking about. So last night um, you watch like some of these lefties or you watch, um, you know, some of the lefties that we'll face um, with the, the Indians and twins. And you saw it with like Yelich and Moose and some guys you've seen this year. Javi will go over at the beginning of an at-bat into the shift and kind of play up the middle, um, especially if there's a runner on first base. Um, he'll kind of be tethered to the bag. If we get to two two strikes, a lot of times you see us flip-flop KB and Javi. And a lot of that is with two strikes, obviously there's going to be a lot more weak contact. Guys kind of change or alter the swings you know, a little bit to make contact. We want to give Javi as much field to cover as possible in those mm-hmm. situations. So you almost put him back over in the shortstop area with no one else over there and just allow him to cover. He's like your free safety. You know, he's covering everything that we have on that side of the field. So, you know, we, we try to do that um, in counts where we feel there's going to be more weak contact. Um, whereas early in the count, um, usually you'll see a lot more hard hit balls kind of where, where we want to position guys. But yeah, to your, to your point, you'll watch that. And when you see that movement with two strikes, a lot of the time it's to create space for hobby to make play. Yep. That makes sense. I have one more shifting question before we move on, because you're an expert on this. We talked about the four man outfield and, and you're not totally averse to it, but you made a point to me a couple of years ago that in some cases, 
you know, if you know kind of where a guy, his tendencies are to hit the ball to the pull side in the outfield, um, you don't need two guys in the area when really the, the, the standard positioning, that's where all the outs are made, right? So if a guy mm-hmm. keeps flying out to right field to straightaway right, uh, and doesn't hit a lot of ground balls, the thought may be, we'll put an extra outfielder out there to cover more ground. But your point was, yeah, but all the outs he makes are basically <laughs> standard outs. So I don't want to maybe take and flood the zone to a point where we don't need it. Is that an accurate assessment of your thought on on the outfield positioning? Yeah, a- absolutely. I, I think one other piece of that too is not all um, outfield spray is the same. Um, I mean that a lot of balls, hang time matters. <laughs> so yeah. if you have Jay Hay out there, you have Hap in center, and there's a lot of fly ball spray all over the place, but the average hang time is 4.5 seconds or higher, he's going to have plenty of time to catch all those balls. I think it makes more sense to go to a four-man outfield with guys that hit more line drives um, and more, you know, like more hard line drive contact than it does for a guy that's just high launch angle with high spray because you're you're basically you're giving up an in, you know a ground ball which he didn't hit a ton of but you're also covering an area that you can cover already because of the hang time. So I think that that is something that uh sometimes gets lost into what type of contact cuz again it's just like the infield not all contacts created equal not all fly balls are equal and not all ground balls are equal. So just, just managing that, you know, managing how, um, you know, how you want to position that. And, and to be honest with you too, like the depth of a shift guy on the pull side, if you move your second baseman out far enough, I mean, when does he can, when is he considered an outfielder, not an infielder? Mm-hmm. So um, that's just the way we look at it. A lot of those shift guys, pull side, it's deep because there are hard line drives hit out there that we want to try to get. There's also enough room for that guy. If there's a ground ball hit to him, he can come in. Uh, well, so we're going to spend the, the rest of our two hours talking about you, Darvish. <laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> so if, I t- if you told you in his next start, you are only allowed to throw cutter and slider, and those two pitches are totally on, he's fine, right? I mean, if he were literally limited to just those two pitches, he, he could not only survive, but he could thrive. Uh, yeah, he, he he could. He'd be mad at me, though, because because <laughs> he wouldn't want to just throw two pitches, but he could. Right. But they've been that good. <laughs> they have. I mean, he's – and it's so unique. I mean, you you say it, you know, as like, oh, if he throws, you know, these two pitches. Those two pitches, game to game – so there was one at bat yesterday in his start. He threw – he started off the at bat with a cutter at 82. Then he threw an 81-mile-an-hour slider. Then he threw an 83-mile-an-hour slider. Then he threw an 88-mile-an-hour cutter. And then I finished him with like a, I think, an 84-mile-an-hour hard slider. So my point is, yes, he could get through a game easily throwing cutters and and sliders. But his cutters range from 82 to 95. And his sliders range from, you know, 79 to 86. You know, it's such a unique – he's got such a unique ability to – to change speeds with spin that I just don't think you've seen, we've seen, you know, at that level, um, you know, in the major leagues, you hear about changing speeds all the time, even taking stuff off your fastball 
and and changing speeds with fastball versus spin or or the changeup, but just his ability to change speeds within a pitch that's not a fastball is so unique. Um, and he's fun to watch. And he's and he's fun, so fun to work with for us too, because you know when Borzi talks about okay, this guy, you know, we want the harder cutter, and he's like, okay, how, how hard? Ninety. 293 or more like the 87 88 one and you'd be like no the 92 93 one we want to get in on them and the next guy is like all right we want the more downer slower one he's like okay so 84 80 i mean it's that precise is what he wants to talk about in terms of which type of pitch to use each year it reminds me of the uh, the golf anecdote of nicholas or woods or and, and maybe it's just a story maybe it wasn't true or maybe greg norman where he asked his caddy how far are we and he said uh uh, you know, 170, 172, and, and Norman was like, well, which one is it? You know, and yeah. he, so the same thing, with, if you want the 84 or the 86. Exactly. Uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. It's, it's, it is so unique, and, and, and that's the thing, too. It's so cool. He could throw four different pitches that, were all, that are all like 85 miles an hour that all move different ways, you know? So that, that's, it's just fun to watch him pitch. He's fun to work with. And I know, you know, he's fun to watch pitch just because of how much movement he creates, especially when you get to watch him, you know, from the, from the, you know, center field camera. Give us the simplest answer to this question. How could a guy with the highest walk rate in baseball in the first half last year, go to the guy with the lowest walk rate in baseball in the second half? Something that if you said it happened and you didn't witness it, you wouldn't believe it because it, it never happens, Tommy. It doesn't happen. I don't. <laughs> How did he do it? The, honestly, it's just being comfortable and being yourself um, in this game. You know, a lot of times you're you're kind of told what to do, and and not allowed the ability to take ownership of, um, have influence on what you want to do and how you want to attack people, and just sim- simply he's he's himself. He's having fun. He gets to improvise on the spot. We allow him to create pitches and shapes and things that he wants to do when he feels like he wants to do. You know, who am I to tell him when to add a spike to a slider because you want to create more depth? He does that on his own. And having the freedom to be able to throw the pitches he wants to throw, work at the pace that he wants to work, um, you know, allowing him to be himself. I, I think that's just the biggest thing. And and he's been a joy to, to watch, um, you know, since, since basically, you know, July 1st of last year, just how, how he's kind of taken to that and been himself and, and kind of controlled his own game. He's kind of the pitching version of Javi, right? The creativity and the ability to, to kind of manage his own game. Yeah. You're, you're, there's going to be times where you're going to feel like you're going to, you know, beat your head against the wall because of those, you know, mistakes that may happen or, or something that may go on during the game. But in the end, like you're going to bet on the person you're betting on that, that person to come through and be successful and, and allowing them the freedom to be themselves and express themselves. And, and in, I think we've all gotten to see Darvish's personality kind of blossom with this success and with how um he's now had freedom on the field and it's kind of translated you know off the field as well and he's he's himself he's got such a great sense of humor and he's he's such a fun guy to to be around and and he's he's 
you know, he, he works hard, all the things you want in those guys. But yeah, you, you want them to have the freedom to, to be themselves and, and go out there and have fun. Uh, I want the two pitchers to talk here. Uh, JD, I'm sure you've told Tommy uh, essentially the 22nd version of what almost every pitching coach ever told you. And it was all kind of the same generic stuff. Um, but just kind of the idea, JD, and I'll let you lead into it of how times have changed in terms of uh, pitching coaches' relationships with pitchers. Yeah, I actually had a, a note down here to, to, to ask that very thing to Tommy because my, my sense is that. Um, you know, when you go to the mound now, um, there probably is some of some old school stuff, but also I would, I would suspect more specific, Hey, we like this pitch and this count or this situation or more just a refresher on the scouting report as opposed to, and, and God bless them. I had a lot of great guys that were my pitching coaches, but I don't know that I ever got any information beyond, uh, and it usually came in a deep gravelly voice like, Hey, stay back. Yeah. Go get him. Bear down. You know. Um, so, I mean, that's that's, that's changed a uh, uh, hundredfold, correct? Yeah, I, I think, and to be honest with you too, and I know you can speak to it, because of the, the way messages were, you know, presented back in the day, I, I don't really remember any mound visit I ever had, you know, because I can't remember, you know, a lot of positive uh, takeaways other than like, you, like you said, slow down back, you know, get back, be aggressive, like all those things. And now, you know, depending on, on the circumstance, there are plenty of times where I go out there just to kind of hit, hit the proverbial reset button, you know, mm-hmm. for them, just kind of, you know, walk through some things. There's a lot of times where um, a situation may dictate something, for example, and you'll know uh, JD as good as anyone, you know, when you needed a ground ball in the past, like what were you always told to do? All right, either go sinker down away or try to run, you know, a fastball in for weak contact and get off the barrel. But if you needed a ground ball, a double play, majority of people were throwing a fastball down away. That's just not the case anymore. You know, fastballs down away necessarily don't go on the ground all the time. So a lot of what we do research wise too, let's say, for example, it's first and third and one out in a big spot. I might go out there and say, hey, on this hitter, the curveball is actually the ground ball pitch. Um, you know, just remind them of what, what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, you know, maybe it's like, okay, we have, we have curveball early. It's a ground ball pitch. We can use that to get ahead and hopefully, you know, get a ground ball in the process. If we get ahead to two strikes, then we put them away. Here's our, you know, we're kind of walking through that type of scenario um, and, and giving them the freedom to do what they want to do at that point. Um, last night, you know, we, we had an opportunity with the, with the base open and one out. Um, to kind of pitch around Lindor, you know, we had Mike Freeman on deck. So, you know, it's a tie ball game, you know, runner on second. We we looked at that situation and I went out there and was like, hey, we have a base open. I, you know, I'm comfortable walking him here if you guys want to. If not, we're going right, you know, to this pitch and because we want to try to get weak contact and we felt like he was swinging. And by the time I got back to the dugout, Rossi was, they were already talking about it. It's actually played out perfect. Rossi, Rossi ended up wanting to walk him and then we had Freeman come up next and you almost got the double play ball out of it. So, you know, just stuff like that. I think there's a little bit more strategy involved. Um, again, there's still plenty of times where the pitchers don't hear what they're saying and you're kind of change the, you know, change the mojo. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to, you know, in a 30 second conversation, what can go on and, and what can be said kind of in those moments. Especially with the, uh, 
the late inning stuff, right? The, the high adrenaline moments, the, the, the high leverage relief pitchers out there, and the, the head is just spinning, and you go out there to try to. I've I've heard, I've heard that from a number of uh, pitchers. What did so and so say? I have no idea, man. I don't remember that he came out. I mean, exactly. Yeah. You just try in those moments. You know what's what's going on and how fast things are. I just try to give them one nugget, one thing to to take away. And in many um, ways, you're communicating with the catcher more than the pitcher, probably. Exactly. Exactly. If you if you watch, I don't know how much the TV hones in on those mount, those meetings, but you'll see. I'll get a vibe within the first five seconds if the pitcher's hearing me at all. And nine times out of ten, I just start turning and talking to the pitcher. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. Today's the day to get 0% APR financing for 60 months on a new 2020 RAV4. Head into your local Toyota dealer today or visit toyota.com for more details. Event ends September 30th. I don't want to dive too deeply into this because I know you've talked a ton about it, but your, your, your positive uh, coronavirus test and then the month of hell you went through and really beyond that, recovering. Um, maybe let's let's talk more about how you presented it to the team. And if you feel that it, it seems to me that it really hit home, uh, that there was a, a face to this thing and the idea that it can happen to you at any moment and just how powerful that was in summer camp. Yeah, I feel like... Um... My so one thing I really wanted to do going through it was continue all the Zoom calls that we we had going on. We were doing Friday Zoom calls with all the pitchers. Um, occasionally, we'd have position players on there to talk through scenarios, catchers, or sometimes even a few of the infielders talk through things. I wanted to be um, completely open with those guys and allow them to see what I was going through. Um, so I, I think my openness to kind of like pull the curtain back and let them watch, like physically see me on Zoom, listen to me cough and talk and and have to get off after three minutes because I couldn't stop coughing. Like things like things like that, I think obviously are lasting. Um, they hit home. But I, I think the other part of it too is, you know, I'm I'm 39 years old. I'm not um, you know, I'm not in my sixties. I'm I'm not, I don't have underlying health conditions and I still had a really tough time with it. Um, it just hit me differently than a lot of other people. So I think that part of it, just them realizing just um, and being around me and know, know how I take care of myself and just knowing how it still affected me. I mean, it, it obviously hits home. So, um, you know, then when we when we got um, back together for summer camp and, and we had a conversations about everything, I just kind of talked about my experience again. And and walk through some things. And, and my biggest thing was, I don't know where I got it. And I, you have no idea how it's going to affect you. And that was just such a scary thing to think about. Right. I mean, if I could pinpoint it to one place, I got it, then great. If, and also you can pinpoint, I had the reactions that I had to it because of X, Y, or Z that I have going on with me, then that makes sense. Mine didn't, you know, and that was, that's, what's so unique for my, from, from my uh, experience and, and just how, um, you know, just, just how uncertain this thing, this whole thing is. Yeah, that's it. That's just, to me, uh, that's the scariest part is what we don't know, uh, about it. And along those lines, uh, the protocols, uh, we've talked to David Bodie and Alec and, 
a lot of people who are traveling and it's not easy. Uh, Javi talked to us on the post game show last night and he said, this has been, this has been really, really difficult uh, a year. Um, I, I, can you articulate just the difficulty these guys are, are dealing with? And when people on TV are watching uh, them perform, there's an assumption that everything is kind of normal because it looks normal, but all the behind the scenes stuff is totally different. And uh, I give you guys a lot of credit for, for powering through it without uh, really complaining about how, how difficult it is. But w- what's been the most difficult part of that? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. Uh, the freedom, the freedom to just be, get away. We don't have, you don't have, like you go on the road, you're at the field. We're only allowed at the field a certain amount of time. Right. So we can only be there for six hours, um, five or six hours. The rest of the time you're stuck in the hotel. I mean, we can't, we, you can't even leave the hotel. So, you know, it is, there's times it's hard to like there there and JD you've been through it there's times you need uh, an outlet an outlet away from baseball when you're playing every single day and you haven't had an off day in 2 weeks but it, it's just very um monotonous in, in the fact that like okay it's to the field back to the hotel to the field back to the hotel you're getting you know i think one time uh, we had um a 1 o'clock bus to the field i had already been temperature screen four times you know it's wow. it, it's just a lot there's a lot that goes into it and we haven't even started we're, we're having you know we're gonna have discussions now about the, the playoff bubble you know i'm about ready to tell my family bye i love you i'll see you and hopefully if we make it to the world series i'll see you in a month like i'm not gonna get to see them you know we're 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 gonna be gone and i think all of us are trying to wrap our heads around that now too just the fact of you know how just how unique this whole thing is and the fact that we're you you are you feel like you don't have a lot of freedom um and it's like do everything we can just to play the game that day and that's that's the focus and sometimes the the needs (laughs) and maybe wants of the the staff and the coaches and the support staff and people that are going through this aren't necessarily um i wouldn't say considered but at the front of the minds of the people that just are trying to get the games in. It's kind of like the uh, like the Soviet Olympic team or something, right? Where you're just kind of on lockdown, um, you know, go to the park, go back to the hotel. Uh, as to the playoff bubble now, it's my understanding, I think this has been confirmed now, the plan is uh, at home next week, right? You move into the hotel in advance of the postseason, is that correct? That's my understanding. Again, we're going to talk through that today. But yeah, like that's my thing. We we play three games here. I can't stay at my house. I can't sleep in my own bed. You know, and and that's just the tough part too. Is like my family and I obviously gone through it. My kids are homeschooling. My family hasn't left the house in six months just because of you know other than going to the park and riding bikes and things like that because of the environment we're in. We're trying to eliminate everything, and now I can't see them just because of potential exposure and what that may do, you know, that, that's the tough part. Um, but yeah, and families are not allowed. Tommy, families are not allowed to join you in the hotel. Is that correct? Some, so we're working through, I know for sure the, the players families are, but again, you know, like think of, think of guys that have families here and have a house, <laughs> like you know, yeah. John yeah. Lester and his wife and all their kids and people in 
or nanny are here, do you want to move from your nice house and then into a, a hotel for, right. <laughs> you know, yeah. right down the street? So I think we're all kind of trying to work through what's best, you know, for all of us and, and each individual um, um, person's, you know, what, what they're dealing with. So, yeah, there there's definitely ability for families to join the bubble. It's just, you know, is it worth it? Yeah, you know? it's worth it. Right, right. Yeah, yeah that's crazy. Well, Tommy, we, we appreciate the time and uh, I hope uh, we can we can do this in the off season. And uh, I want to talk more about Tommy Hadavi and your uh, life and your career. But I want to leave you with this. Uh, and, and this is a fun one to ask uh, all former players, especially a pitching coach who knows all the technology now. And we, you and I have talked about this before. And you didn't pitch that long ago, but technology's changed so much in the, in the numbers. What's the one thing you wish you had 10, 12 years ago that you have at your disposal now that might have made you a little bit better as a pitcher? You only get one, not seven. <laughs> no, it's fine. It's, it's easy. It's easy for me because it, what I, would, I wish I had at this level is what I, what I call like pitch level data. Meaning, how how I can dig into hitters um, by location, by um, pitch type, to to the level that we have. I mean, I was around right, um, you know, bats was still involved, but but that was very very um, like the bats program was very rudimentary. It, it, if I could game plan the way I can game plan now, I the one thing I could do pitching was move the ball around and, and execute. I didn't have great stuff. So I needed like the Rapsodo units and stuff would have been great. I could maybe increase my spin a little bit more, but if I knew where to throw the ball, I, I could get it there. And I think just having that depth of scout report or that depth of knowledge on how pitches play to certain hitters, then I, I feel like I, I would have done a lot better um, for me. I want to throw one more at you that. Yeah. Um, so, um, is a 17-year-old kid listening to this podcast and wants to increase velocity, other than training, is there a mechanical adjustment a player can make that would increase velocity? The number one thing that I think, you know, coaches and players, young players need to watch for, for young pitchers is what I call, you know, getting too quad dominant on their back leg which means like you get very pushy in your delivery the more you can sit on your back leg and sit into your glute and use your your stronger you know glute and hamstring muscles to drive to the plate you're gonna increase power and you're and not only that your your stuff is gonna be better because your arms on time a lot of times when you see guys get off their their toe on their back leg or their drive leg and they they get going down the mound too quick. That's where you get out of sync and lose everything. So we talk a lot about, about glute activation. We talk a lot about like strengthening, doing, you know, like one legged squats and doing things where you stay um, connected, your heel connected to the, to that rubber and driving to the plate. Um, I think that's the number one thing I, I, you know, all the other stuff, there's a lot of other things out there, weighted balls and things like that. And JD, you know, if your lower half is right, then your arm is going to be in the right place the majority of the time. So we do a lot of work with the lower half, syncing everything up, and then trusting that your your natural arm path will 
will take you there and generate that velocity. I hate to go keep going back to golf, but it's like why you could see some of these smallish golfers hit the ball a mile. It's because of the kind of the, the kinetic chain all the way up through the body and the timing, right? So not necessarily bigger, stronger, but timing. Everything works from the ground up. And, and unfortunately, there's a lot of focus now on, I would say, almost like the arms down, you know, more priority on the arm and less priority on the lower half. But you can be as strong as you want. You can be the strongest guy in the, on the team and, ha- and be able to throw the ball the farthest. But if you can't translate that to a mound, it doesn't matter. And so we put a lot more emphasis on mound work. We put a lot more emphasis. We, we bought a um, portable mound and it's in the weight room now. So with the work of our strength staff and what we're trying to do in there, we're doing a lot more actual, you know, workout activity on a mound. Mm. Trying to, you know, trying to maximize the amount of time that we can get on a mound instead of just a game day and a bullpen day. So just coming up with new ways like that to be able to be innovative and, and allow guys to, okay, you're doing lunges today. Well, let's do lunges on the mound. <laughs> you know, let's do. Oh, you can replicate it. Yeah. Yeah, so that's something we're we're incorporating now. Well, that's great stuff. Yeah, great. Tommy, thanks so much for the time. We know you're busy, and uh, you know, do family stuff today, and then come up with a great game plan tonight. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Tommy. Hey, JD, did you know fans can still sign up for the Cubs season? ticket holder waitlist. Fans can secure their spot in line right now for the chance to purchase Cubs season tickets. Once you're signed up, the Cubs will send emails periodically to let you know your place in line. For information and to sign up, go to cubs.com slash waitlist. You know, Len, uh, indeed, I am aware, have been aware of the season ticket holder waiting list for quite some time now, and we hope to have fans back in the ballpark in 2021. And by placing a ticket pack deposit, you'll have the opportunity to purchase tickets before the general single game ticket on sale date. There are eight game packs and 14 game packs that can be customized to your preferences. For more information, visit cubs.com slash ticket packs. Not surprised. Great stuff with Tommy Hadovy, who is uh, incredibly thoughtful. And I love the the stuff about the shifting. He he really is uh, an expert on that stuff, and uh, has carried that into his pitching coach duties. And look, knock on wood, JD. We we've talked about this in the past. The Cubs are the only team that hasn't had a, a positive COVID test uh, as of this recording in terms of players. And I have to believe that what Tommy went through, as as awful as that was for him, the silver lining was it seemed to have a big impact internally. Yeah, um, and how mindful is that of Tommy to continue those Zoom meetings um, while he was sick to convey that very message to his players, like, hey, guys, take this seriously because I'm a wreck. And the fact that he's, you know, not uh, much older than than a lot of the guys on the club, I think had to be an eye-opening experience for all of them. And, uh, yeah, as, as far as the shifting and the strategizing and everything else he talked about, uh, coaching, uh, pitching coaches, it's, it's trending uh, younger in Major League Baseball and it's trending a whole lot smarter. He's a very sharp individual. Okay, I have the Dixon Baseball Dictionary, the third edition, written by the great Paul Dixon. 
give us a, a letter and we'll uh, we'll dive into some baseball jargon. Uh, let's go with the letter L today. Okay. L for Len. Uh, let's see. Okay. I guess I should have picked W, right? But we'll go with L. <laughs> uh, oh, okay. Here you go. Have you heard of loaf season? L-O-A-F? <laughs> uh, is that something you put on your meatloaf to make no. it taste good? No. That is a sarcastic term for the off season. And it comes from 1916 in The Sporting Life. John Lobert, who is spending the loaf season in Philadelphia. So instead of the winter or the off season, we have the loaf season, the which loaf is kind of season. which is kind of year round for the you and I, right? Yeah, yeah, I, can't. <laughs> I have a hard time distinguishing the loaf season from the busy season. Okay, uh, all right, a uh, couple more here. Uh, live arm, an attribute of a pitcher who has a fastball that pops or a curveball that snaps. The term often appears in a scouting report on a pitcher with strength. Yeah, that, that's a term you hear. Uh, a lot. He has a live arm. Uh, you hear about pitchability and a professional at bat. Live arm is kind of a tried and true term for a guy who has good stuff, right? Yeah, and, and we've always we have a hard time. You know, normally you look at somebody you know throwing ninety eight miles an hour, and it's very easy to say, "Hey, he's got a live arm." But I think maybe it speaks a little bit. Uh, and we talk in the modern game so much about spin rate and spin efficiency, and maybe that is a better um, better way to talk about a live arm, you know, because we talk about guys who, who have jump on the fastball or late action on a, a two-seam fastball or a real sharp-breaking curveball, and that's, that's all about spin rate. All right, a couple more. Little Tom, are you familiar with that? Little Tom, I am not familiar with Little You're Tom. You're going to love this. This was Satchel Page's term for his, quote, medium fastball. So maybe like not his Hardest fastball, but maybe more like a, a you know BP type fastball. He called it the Little Tom. And then lastly, have you heard of load of coal? Load of coal. We're going to have uh, to drop this into a broadcast. A load of coal is a slow, soft pitch, a changeup. Huh. <laughs> and I, thought the, was, I thought it was when Hamels joined the team. Was hey, get a load of coal. <laughs> That dude is really something. The synonym was load of garbage. So uh, a load of coal uh, means a slow pitch. So there there, there you go. Yeah, I love the little Tom, too. Yeah, it's like a dead fish, right? (laughs) All right, for this week's admission, uh, I'll give you uh, something positive and fun. Uh, A TV show I have just uh, discovered uh, via my wife, who said, hey, this show Cobra Kai on Netflix is something you have to see. I don't want to give away too much, but it is essentially the update on the Karate Kid story. And uh, I will be 50 in January, so people around my age will definitely relate uh, to the era of the mid-80s. And uh, Karate Kid is one of the more popular American films out there. So uh, it's fun. It's, uh, you know, the episodes are short, 22 minutes. It's kind of a light but heavy comedic drama if that makes sense there aren't a lot of like laugh out loud moments but there's some humor in there and uh i think it touches on some some fun themes as well it's very popular and i assumed i would hate it and i really like it so check it out what do you have this week i'll be sure to check it out Uh, two things one i'm 
just lamenting the end of the season. You know, we just got started and here we are coming to a crashing halt. I mean, looking forward to the postseason. It'll be fun to watch. It'll be exciting. Uh, but uh, just kind of wish there were a lot more regular season baseball to do. And then the second one is also related to, to uh, television. Uh, finally gotten around to watching Band of Brothers. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, obviously uh, it's it's gripping and it can be horrific and uh, just real good storytelling. But the point I want to make, has there been a more random appearance in the history of film, television, whatever, than Jimmy Fallon rolling up in a Jeep in Band of Brothers? I mean, what is going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's a good point. Now, I, I would say that when he was in Band of Brothers, I don't think he had the late night talk show, but he probably had been on Saturday Night Live, right? Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. was, yeah, he, you know, the goal was to be a, at some point, I guess, a serious actor. Um, but it just, yeah, and, and when you see it now, right. having seen Fallon over all the years on SNL and then his talk show, you go, well, that's kind of weird. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's a good catch. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, thanks uh, for listening. We had fun this week, and uh, as we near the playoffs, it's going to get even more fun. Special thanks to Max Berman, Joe Rios, Matt Romito, Daniel Green, Jim Obojkowicz. Shane McGuire and Adam Sobel. For Jim Deshays, I'm Len Casper. Subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast with your friends. We will talk to you next week. This is Open Concessions, presented by Toyota. Stay back. Bear down. <laughs>